Hi there, this is group two, and here's our conversation on the themes of this week, what was missing and what we learned. Hope you enjoy. A key thing that Godz's paper and Ahmed's paper helped with is not only how being self-reflexive is important for the client, but also for the self. If we leave our I uninterrogated, then we don't really know the ground upon which the I was built. I know there was one student who posted, you know, why are we talking about residential schools? Why is everyone bringing this up? but they force us to look at ourselves in a different way. And it also reminded me of, you know, that quote by Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. I like the more positive rendition of it, that a life well-examined is worthy of living. So yeah, not only is it helpful for others, but it's helpful for ourselves as well. That ties back to the omission of the other in the eye. It's not necessarily something that she may have reflected on until now. It's something that is crucial to our role as social workers, is constantly reflecting on the institutions that impact our clients in an oppressive way. That need is there in every interaction that we have. Also, Angela, you posed a question to one of the students that commented, you were asking, well, what would questioning somebody about their background or their culture, what would that look like in a way that is fruitful for discussion versus in a way that may further marginalize that person? Yeah, the point isn't to shut down conversation by critiquing, it's to be open and get a new idea of the self. And then for implications regarding reflexive practice, we separate it into two. For the client, that can be just making sure that we're aware of their intersectional identities when we are interacting with them, proactively reflecting on our biases as a practitioner, and that meshes into the self. So always bringing in that critical reflexivity to reduce harm to the client. Also the fallibility, realizing that there's limits to our self-reflexivity. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. And like within that, sometimes within social work itself, as well as when we're looking at ethics, we always try to divide and say, you know, we we need to look at these things and we can't miss these things. That's why I really liked the idea of fallibility, because it's looking at it like we are human. We're going to miss things. And actually, by ignoring that, we're doing like a disservice to the people that we work with, because when we acknowledge those things, we can actually have open dialogue and change what's going on. Sometimes we kind of hyper focus on trying to include everything that sometimes it excludes conversation where we can actually leave space to like grow and understand and you know build more on our social work knowledge in in general right so um, and actually that's why i mentioned something that's not brought up it's an article about not knowing by chambun it basically talks about the idea of not knowing and i thought that it, it really tied into gold's article too because it talks about approaching people and and people we work with from the idea of not knowing so though we understand systemic oppression we still approach the individual from where they are and who they are so all of the diversities and intersections that experiences they may have and it kind of lessens the idea of self and other and brings it more together as a cohesive one in a way i think this ties into power so one of the questions that we have here is how do you redress injustices embedded in inequitable relations of power. And you think as social workers versus a client, there is some level of power that we keep. And I think that by leaving an open space for dialogue and for those conversations, that we are lessening that power dynamic. So kind of tying together, Kathy and Molly, what you guys were saying about fallibility and not knowing, especially when it comes to our clients, so in terms of how we can address injustices and how we can be reflexive practitioners. Not knowing also allows our clients to be presented to us as individuals with distinct features rather than us essentially stereotyping them and putting labels upon them, which is part of human nature at the end of the day. I mean, we like to put things into groups. So also recognizing how that's part of our cognition can also be helpful. This not knowing is just so necessary, how we like to put things into 
group because one thing that I found missing, not just from the resources, the reading, but our class discussions, but also our lessons, was how this applies also as social workers to research. And one of the things I've been struggling even in my other classes is I'm going through a paradigm crisis because coming from a psychology background, I have learned recently that I am a strong positivist. I believe that there is almost, in a sense, finding an absolute truth. But in that, you often silence individual voices. You often silence people who are not under that generalized umbrella of results. So I think, you know, especially for someone coming from a positive background, it's so important as a, maybe a potential offer or approach as a solution to come at things with maybe a qualitative approach, you know, as a researcher. And that's just in order to validate and lift each of these individual experiences. I come from a health sciences background as well. So in addition to the discussion that happened this week, how we have to practice reflexivity to minimize harm by acknowledging biases and limitations, I look at it from like a systems perspective where we expect people who experience poor living and working conditions to be rational thinkers. So, you know, folks who experience embodied social inequities, which are not natural or inevitable, they're perpetuated. How do we support that autonomy while respecting embodied self? As someone who wants to explore the realm of policy, what does this look like on that structural level? Who is making these decisions and how do our embodied ideas and the people that we work with interprofessionally influence the policies that come in place? That's a good question. I had a supervision and it was all about reflexive practice. I was asked, how does that make you feel honestly and truly? It made me realize and tie into this course where we're looking at like the self and I. I think it was Ahmed where bodies are communicating as we're sitting with an individual. So reflecting back to our work and understanding the way that immediately how we feel about something and being honest about our errors and our thoughts can actually be really impactful. That's a nice tie-in for questions that we could ask for the future. What you were describing right now about how our bodies can communicate as well, that reminded me of, again, the residential school stories. Also, again, one of the students brought that up in their posts. I would just bring it back to the question that you were asked, like, how did that make you feel? What were those knee-jerk reactions? Circling back to those and taking a step back makes us realize that, okay, this is what this situation is about. This is who it's impacting, who's present, who's not present, and so on.